but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. And whoo, it's a whirlwind first week of the French Open. Not a lot of happy stuff for us <laughs> as, as fans, but a lot of mess. As usual, the slams just bring the mess. So we went into the, the French not having a lot of unnecessary drama floating around the edges this year compared to last year. And uh, it was kind of nice just to be able to look at the draws and talk about the tennis. And and for most of the first week, I think it was like that. Two years ago, Sherpova was coming back. Last year, what was going on? Oh, last, last year, year was the cat suit and the mm. seating drama. And, and everything was revolving around Serena in the coverage. This year, there wasn't a whole lot going into it. There was a lot of intrigue and mystery about who's going to perform well. But other than that, it comes to the weekend, I think. So when people are off of work and Serena's playing, things are just going to happen. And frankly, it's very tiresome. I don't know how you all aren't tired, because I am. I understand there's a lot of pull to to speak. Like if you're in one of the concerned camps, it is so tempting to say something. And I did. By concerned, you mean pressed? <laughs> if you're in one of the concerned parties, or the involved parties, it is very tempting to speak, but why? And I did. You know, I couldn't resist the urge. But at this point, it's like, why are we doing the same thing over and over it's exhausting. Yeah, but you still waited a little bit to get a little bit more of a grip on the situation. I did, unlike certain paid professionals. We'll talk about that later. But it tennis-wise, it was a pretty exciting first week, especially on the women's side. There were a lot of surprises. We come to expect surprises now. But a lot of surprises that aren't surprises. It's a lot of come-to-ness for a lot of players who've been Putting in the hard work. Mm -hmm. A lot of the players that you may think, if you're a casual follower of tennis, you're like, who is that? They're players who've had good to great clay court seasons already, and also players who come from a pedigree previously in their career. There's really only a couple of players left who are like, well, wow, this is this is actually quite surprising for them. One of them would be uh, Aljona Bolsova, who is a Moldovan Spanish player who is currently ranked 137 and has come through to the fourth round seemingly out of nowhere. A lot of tennis journalists have never even heard of her. And she was able to exploit that soft section of the draw after Kvitova's withdrawal. So where Kvitova would have been, they placed a lucky loser. Uh, Balsova did well to beat Alexandrova in the third round, and now she's here. Collecting points and coins. So you want to start on the women's side with the notable results, right? Mm -hmm. I have to say, I, well, the tennis Twitter racket bracket thing that we've been doing for the last year or so, uh, you didn't do it. I did it. And there's only like 10 people in it <laughs> this year, which is kind of sad. Makes me a little bit sad. Mm -hmm. So how are you doing among the 10? I was, I think I'm still maybe second behind our listener and pal, Philip, who is apparently going to run away with it at this point. <laughs> but where I fell apart the night before the draw... Sorry, the night before the tennis actually started, I went back in and took out Vondrosova as making the semifinals. Why? What was I thinking? Who did you have beating? I don't even remember at this point. It's so tragic. 
It's like, this is everybody's dark horse pick. So everybody's going to have our getting to the semifinals, and that's where I can make some hay. Mm. That's what I was thinking. Oh, oh, I see. It was like a risky It was a risky thing. And so, joke's on me. Mm -hmm. But here she is, Marqueta. She is living her life as a 19-year-old, bageling people. She has two bagels. (laughs) She just had a straight-set win to get into the quarterfinals over... A Sevastovo. Mm -hmm. 6-2-6 love. That is an accomplishment. Mm Mm-hmm. Although Sevastova is not most comfortable on clay. Still, still. She hasn't been playing badly lately. Uh, Carlos Suarez Navarro. Well, we know she's prone to be bageled. <laughs> this, unfortunately, as much as we love Carlo, she has suffered. I, I would bet, I would imagine and put some money on it that of all the players who have been ranked top 10 over the last decade, nobody's been bageled more than she has. Stop. I'm just no, saying... Sarah Arani begs to differ. She's putting her <laughs> hand up. That's not fair. We love Carla in this we, house. We do. It's just that it didn't surprise me as much. Mm-hmm. Now, Vandrosova is becoming a fan favorite and, and is becoming far more widely known. And we didn't give enough credit to the other dark horse in that section, Petra Martic. No. We were talking a lot about Kiki Mladenovic. Mladenovic losing to Martic in the second round, which, looking back... Okay, not not that bad. And we probably should have called it. This is Mardich's first Grand Slam quarterfinal, but she has been in two rounds of 16 before. I thought her win over Pliskova was quite surprising. Especially that it was straight sets. Mm-hmm. I know that now that Mardich has won, everybody's like, oh yeah, Pliskova was so vulnerable. Uh, nobody's surprised that she lost. But I would argue that having come in on such an upswing, having a very good season, and winning in Rome... It was a, a pretty big surprise. And especially where she was positioned in the, in the draw, it was a, a good spot to be, to make a deep run. Right. Because she could have avoided Simona, well, but then a lot of those players sort of exunted themselves. Serena and Naomi. I know a lot of Serena fans and Venus fans are not as happy to see this person resurgent. Uh, but I am. Joe Conta. <laughs> is back in business on clay. We talked about this on the preview episode that she clapped back at me in Charleston a couple years ago saying, well, hey, actually, I'm not that bad on clay. I had most of my best challenger ITF wins initially on clay to start my, to get you know my career in full swing. Mm-hmm. It just hasn't happened yet. And she came into this French Open, and you laughed when I said it, <laughs> that she had yet to win a match at the French Open. And here she is in the quarterfinals. After, I mean, an exceptional, clean, straight sets win over Donna Vekic. Right. Vekic, for her part, who beat Belinda Bencic. Kanta has notched her first four wins at this tournament in the same year. And here she is, setting up a quarterfinal with Sloane Stevens. We'll get to Miss Stevens in a moment. Lots of folks are being faced with the prospect of pronouncing Iga Sviantek's name right now. We dealt with that a few episodes ago <laughs> mm-hmm. if you have a polish friend ask him or her don't thank- ask martino <laughs> thank you agnes <laughs> we're lucky to have agnes in our in our corner mm. i have to laugh because john wertheim posted a a phonetic pronunciation of her name that was wrong and said here here's how you pronounce it thanks to martina i'm like maybe you should ask a polish person <laughs> someone who speaks polish <laughs> Listen, what Schwantek's doing is wild. Yeah, she just she w- turned 18 a few days she ago. She was a junior Grand Slam champion just last year. 
And she's able to parlay that into boss business in just 12 months. That's crazy mm. to me. She's still in high school. Uh, WTA Insider posted uh, a great interview with her recently talking about her school. She has a few weeks left. So when she finishes this tournament, whenever that happens, she's going to have to catch up on her studies and take her test to see if she can graduate. But more importantly to the matter at hand, she beat Wang and Monica Puig, who had a, a very good result, kind of turning, she is slowly, I think, turning her career around. We have these two players who have these high-profile coaches now who are lower-ranked, and we're watching them because of their affiliation with these high-profile coaches. Mm -hmm. Monica Puig with Kamau Mari, and then Kiki Medanovich with Sasha Bain. And so, right or wrong, but we are definitely having more eyes on those two players to see where that narrative goes with those two players. Monica is, a, is an Olympic champion. She has game, serious game. Mm -hmm. And we've seen Kiki play well and be a top 10 player before. So it's not unwarranted, but it does add a little bit more heft to the victory when somebody like Sviantek is able to take them out. Now she gets to play Simona Halep. We'll get to that later on, but this is the match on the women's side that I am salivating over. It could be... <laughs> I, I don't even know how to put it into perspective what this could do for the women's game to have somebody mm. like Sviantek show up and just do the business this early in her career on this stage mm -hmm. against, what is it, the world number three? All right, but the defending champ, really the consensus choice for the best clay court player right now. And Simona's getting through, but uh, not easily. She's gone to three sets twice already. I mean, who knows? It's an opportunity. It's still a huge uphill battle for Sviantek, but we shall see. It's, un it's, it's unreasonable to expect that we'll ever have somebody come on the scene like Martina Hingis did as a precocious teenager and just boss all these people around, right? And so <laughs> whenever somebody like Anisimova has this breakout run in Australia, she's back here again at the same spot in the fourth round. And now we have Sviantek. We're, we're wondering, like, is this something that we will see? We know that the game has moved on and become far more physical and thus more difficult for a young player, player to be able to do that. But there's something uh, refreshing and inspiring about a young player without the fear, to be able to play without the fear and get those results consistently. Mm -hmm. I think on the women's side, the closest you have at the moment is Naomi Osaka, who has been on tour for years now. Yes. On the men's, it's like Stefanos and Alex Zverev a few years ago. Speaking of Miss Osaka... Yeah, so Naomi started her tournament by getting bageled by Shmidlova, coming back and winning it, and doing things that we saw in Australia, looking like she was not really contending for the title and then getting through all these tough matches. And so people are thinking, okay, wow, Naomi is gutting through these matches again. Are we seeing another deep run? Even though she's not super comfortable on the surface yet, but her movement has gotten so much better... I think what is lacking at the moment is her problem-solving on clay. She played Vika Azarenka in the second round, again, losing the first set before coming through in three sets. That was a match that felt tragic to be just a second round. Yeah, that is upsetting to me, especially considering what happened in the next match. And what happened in the next match? Well, Katerina Siniakova, who is the doubles number one at the moment, took out the singles number one 
Naomi Osaka in straight sets. And it wasn't close, people. It was 6-4, 6-2, but toward the end of it, it, it just seemed like Naomi didn't really have answers, which is clear, but didn't look like she was trying hard to find them. Not that she wasn't trying, but it was like she seemed a little bit defeated, to be honest. It was close up until 4-all in the first set, mm. and then Siniakova won, what, 8 of the next 10 games to close her out. Siniakova is having a dream run at the moment, beating Maria Sakari, who going into it was another Dark Horse favorite, who got slotted into a really, really rough section of the draw. But she was just really down in the dumps after her loss to Siniakova was just seemed really upset by it. She had the awareness of her opportunity Mm -hmm. because she had been playing well. She had come from a stretch where she's seen the highs and the lows. She had the highs of her run on hard courts last year, had the lows subsequent to that in the fall and then early parts of the season, and she was on the upswing again. And she was kind of gifted this opportunity. One of the big early round eye-popping matches was Amanda Nisimova against Arena Sabalenka. And who, who would you have picked to win that match? Well, In my draw, I'd picked Sabalenka. I would have picked Sabalenka because I didn't think that Anisimova was going to do it twice. She beat her at the Australian Open, and it was it was kind of ugly. You know, it, it seemed like at the time Amanda was doing what Arena does, but better. It was ugly for who? For Sabalenka. Okay. You know, but it, the match itself wasn't ugly. I no, remember watching that no. and thinking, wow, Anisimova has just announced herself. Right, and it was... It was that, that match where we said... Somebody actually reached out to us and like, I'm listening to a past past episode. What were you talking about when you said oh, snatch the wig of the, what was it? I don't remember. But, she snatched the wig of the original wig, wig yeah, snatcher. The, but that was the match. <laughs> yes. And that was the fearlessness that I'm talking about with these young players. Anisimova played without fear and her talent was able to, to shine through back in Australia. And she hasn't really had the week-to-week success since. It seems, however... That she is a big stage player. Right. Which can only be a good thing for her. And her pocket. <laughs> right. Maybe the WTA would like to see her spread those results around a little bit. Anisimova is going to play Balsova in the round of 16. They haven't played on that half of the draw yet. She'll probably see that as a very winnable match to get to her first Grand Slam quarterfinal. Where she could face Simona Halep. Or, or Iga Sviantek. <laughs> indie pick Sviantek. Let's, now let's talk about Sloane Stevens. Nobody knows what to expect from Sloane on any given day. She was without a coach for about four months after she split with Kamau Murray. She's now with Sven Grunfeld. She says, you know, they're sort of starting to develop a good relationship. And we're seeing Sloane become herself again in a major. She's defending runner-up points here. You know, it was a little rough going early on, but the match against Muguruza today, very impressive to me. She... Won- what do you, but what do you mean by back to being herself? Like, this, <laughs> I know, this like, is, what is Sloan. The baseline this is Sloan at a Grand Slam. Like, you should expect her to win that match. Well, Sloan can also lose in the first round at a Grand Slam. When was the last time that happened? Am I being stupid here? You're, you're like, did it happen in Australia? I mean, I don't have the math and the statistics on that, but I feel like by and large over the last year and a half, she may have had struggles on the regular circuit, but she's shown up 
at the Grand Slams. You've just looked it up because you're like, before you commit that to oh, air. Yeah, because, okay. I'm just saying, I'm not that far off. Wimbledon last year. Last year in Australian Wimbledon, we have first round losses. So like Sloane's baseline, I don't know what it is, like what her normal is. She's a hard person to pin down, personality-wise and results-wise. I'm just saying it's not surprising. Did I say it was surprising? But it's Never like, once it's did like I say it was surprising. It's like a tired narrative at this point, I feel. Like, and it, it also does not give her enough credit. I'm willing here to give her enough credit. Like She's not a mercurial figure on the WTA anymore, I don't think. Really? No. I think it's clear that she showed a maturation off the court and on the court to do the business, to become more of a like an elderly stateswoman of the WTA tour, to be more involved, to shut shit down for other players. Like we've seen mm-hmm. the growth of Sloan Stevens. It may not be completely a linear upward trajectory. There may have been some bumps in the road, but Sloan is here. What does this have to do with anything that I just said? I you're trying to curry favor with the Sloan hive. No. That's a cheap shot on your end. You're saying that you never know what's going to happen with Sloan. Uh, and I, I still stand by that. That's And um, my point was that's more appropriate at regular event, regular tour events. At the Grand Slam level, I feel like Sloan is here. Okay. Anyway, this is all in service of me trying to say I was really impressed with her match today, which I didn't get that far because I was interrupted. Mm, you're here now. Yeah. She was a little bit passive in the first set against Mugrutha. There was a lot of hype surrounding Garbinia. She was a uh, higher oddsmaker's favorite versus Sloan, which I thought was <laughs> like Sloan's placement in the, the betting odds was so rude. Because L- she ludicrous. is the runner. Yes. There was a lot of hype around Mugrutha here. And I think you see this a lot with Mugrutha. When she starts playing well, I don't know if it's like the style of her game. People are just like, well, she's winning. It's like a foregone conclusion. It's like, well, nobody can beat her now. And Garbina has shown over the past few years that a lot of people can beat her. She can also beat herself. Yes. Very often. Right. So she almost went up three love against Sloan in the first set. Sloan got back into that set, started playing a little more aggressively. Like we know she can. We know that's not where she's most comfortable. But her sort of grinding and counterpunching and then opening up the court with a forehand, this is her bread and butter. She can beat basically anyone on any given day. And I just liked how she dug in, kind of remembered what the game plan should be against Garbinia and just did it. It was it was really impressive to me. And she re- she wasn't even like at peak level, but that second set for most of it felt like a foregone conclusion to me. Garbinier got a little tough at the end, you know, saved like a match point or two, really brought it to her. But for the most part, when Sloane started becoming aggressive, it seemed like Muguruza didn't have a whole lot of chances left. I did not see that match. Mm-hmm. I was at work. Fair so. enough. I'm just saying, I know that for some people that her game is not is not super sexy, right? Like it's not it's not one that inspires everybody to stand, which I get, but... I think when Sloane is firing on all cylinders, she is very exciting to watch. And her weirdo personality is is a plus. I stand her personality much more than her game. <laughs> like the rope-a-dope yeah. tennis does not interest me at all. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a 
derogatory way, if it's possible to even take that in a non-derogatory oh, I'm way. I'm sure it would be, anyone can take it any kind of way. Muhammad Ali rope adult people to <laughs> heavyweight championship titles. Right. Like, it's a strategy. Mm. And uh, more power to her. It just doesn't interest me a lot of the time. When she's, well, you, you get, the thing with watching Sloan for me is that you get pockets of really fascinating, interesting, wow play within a match. Mm-hmm. But you have to wait for it. You have right. to have patience for those moments. And, and they're it, unpredictable too. Yes. And I don't have that patience. Okay, fair enough. So it's really just a preference thing. For the style of play, sure. Mm-hmm. I have enjoyed Sloan Stevens off court for damn near over a year now. <laughs> Talking about if any if any of you see me buy me a Hagen Dazs. Girl, <laughs> buy your own damn Hagen Dazs. Or aspire higher. My God. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Let's move on to the carnage. I had mistakenly put Serena in the notable results, but I, I think I have to move her into the carnage section here. Yeah, yeah I think that's that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. The first round, I watched at my desk at work. Don't tell anybody. She lost that first set very badly, as you recall. But she let out this almighty scream, apropos of nothing. Like, not, not in reaction to a specific point or anything she turned toward the backdrop and just howled and it seemed to galvanize her she put the hair in a bun and just got down to business and the rest of the match was was very encouraging i thought those those last two sets she looked good and that was against daichenko who plays with two hands of both sides and whacks the hell out of the ball like when she was At a certain point, it didn't look like she was going to miss. Mm-hmm. So Serena beats Nara in the second round, and we get to the third round, and Bianca Andreescu has withdrawn. That's another thing we'll talk about in a second. But Serena has to face fellow American Sophia Kennan, 20-year-old, full of pep, came out knowing what she wanted to do, and she did it. And Serena let her do it, period. It was a difficult match to watch, I would say, because... On the timeline, you know, everybody's complaining about Kenan's ticks. The if... timeline being the Twitter timeline. Right. We have to remember that not everybody who listens to the show is keeping up with tennis Twitter. That's true. And they're probably much better for it. They probably have much better mental health. Especially in the last couple of days. <laughs> right. That's for sure. So I myself was starting to get annoyed that Kenan was circling every ball mark. And it was very like a may I speak to your manager performance. You know, it was just like, girl, there are umpires and lines people here for a reason. They get paid to do this job, so stop doing it for them. Like, this isn't juniors, and you've been on the tour for long enough. Just let them do their work. Serena was starting to get annoyed, shot a few stairs over there. Of course, there are people who are very upset about the stairs, code violations, staring, that kind of thing. (laughs) But... Kennan played a great match, and uh, what was more impressive was mentally she didn't falter when Serena was trying to rile herself up. When it got toward the end of the match, she's just doing what she came there to do. Serena was moving terribly, missing a lot. She hit 10 aces, but 32 unforced errors. And I don't know, I mean, Serena said it herself in press. She doesn't have a lot of match play. She admitted that she doesn't like to play out points in practice. Can we rewind that for a second? And it showed yesterday. I just don't understand that bit. 
really. She like, doesn't. What's the difference between playing a few points and just whacking forehand after forehand? What's the difference? As but, in, but she doesn't play matches either. No, my point is, why wouldn't you want to do that? Oh, if you're not okay. playing match, if you're not playing matches, why wouldn't you at least want to try and simulate that a little bit? Uh, I'd, it I was wild to me. Right, because at this stage in her career, she doesn't play warm-ups. She tried to play one in Rome and had to pull out. The other issue is that the knees are probably a bigger issue than she's letting on. At her age, she's probably always playing in some kind of pain, like most athletes are. So I want to, as a fan, approach this the way I would any other player, as if it weren't Serena. And the the bottom line for me as a commentator is you just need to commit to the sport more, or, or you're going to keep losing like this. And I understand like there are so many different pressures and responsibilities that go into being Serena at this age. But, I mean, you're, you're going to lose matches to WTA players like this if you're not moving well and you're missing shots that you would normally make. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think the murmurs that we've heard privately and behind the scenes and what we've seen on court and just reading the tea leaves, it's likely Serena should never have played this tournament. Mm-hmm. Like That wheelchair picture that was circulating when she was with Olympia at Disneyland in Paris that wasn't just her needing rest mm-hmm. and preserving her energy. Like, I think there's there's a, a friction at play with Serena with knowing that she can do what she's doing and maybe show up to a Grand Slam without the preparation that most people would need and still perform well. Mm-hmm. We saw that twice last year at Wimbledon and at the US Open. She had a couple of matches at, at Cincinnati. Fine. But, like, she she's able to do this still i think however her body's not right and i don't think that that necessarily playing more events is going to help her i think her body is betraying her in like random ways the ankle turn in australia in that four in what quarterfinal against pliskova or old age i don't know but like her body isn't able to do things the way she was able to to counten it to do Mm-hmm. In the last few years. She probably shouldn't have played here, but this is not 2008 anymore. Like you said, she made the final of Wimbledon in the U.S. Open, but how did she perform in the finals? You know, like she's, this is not the Serena of 10 years ago or 15 years ago. I don't know what the solution is. I think these campaigns lately have felt a bit joyless, which is what we said after the, the Australian Open. And I feel like the, the record has already been broken. So if she wants to play for fun, she should do that. If she wants to play for records, she should she should do whatever she wants. But speaking now as a fan, I I wish there were a little more enjoyment on her face when she's out there. I'm not telling her what to do. I'm just saying that's my perspective. You're saying the woman should smile more? Uh, shut up. <laughs> <clears throat> that is not it. That is not the same. It's fraught being Serena Williams. It there's sure a lot, is. There's a yes. lot at play. We uh, should talk about the kids. I'm, I'm just saying I saw a lot of folks talk about this. And she was asked about Stim Press. And she was like, well, maybe maybe I will take a wild card into a, a grass lead-up tournament. Mm-hmm. But like, to what end? If your body's not right. That's what I'm like. Yeah. It seems to be the consensus moving forward now that everybody says Serena needs to play more matches. And that's nice in theory. But she can do that if she's fully healthy. Mm-hmm. Like there's this delicate balance right now. She has to find the equilibrium. 
Like there are a lot of things that are askew and only she knows. And even then, who is to say if she's making the the quote unquote right decisions? Because potentially she should not she should not have played this tournament. Right. But Serena doesn't miss majors now. No. At since joining with Patrick, if she's healthy or even like a little healthy, she will play a major. She's not gonna miss. The kit. The kit. It was certainly an improvement over the tutu. I'll remove any expletives I was going to say. Virgil Abloh just... Serena needs to be liberated from this partnership, in my opinion. It was better, but it's time to move on. We we don't need to get Stella McCartney here. Is he supposed to be some kind of genius? Apparently. But it would be in quotation marks, as is his want. I, <laughs> I don't understand what's going on here like the kit was not terrible (laughs) but it's not functional it's It's not not, uh something to play tennis in i i can't even know what to say honestly (laughs) like she didn't look bad in it at all though like she wore it quite well and the cape was gorgeous i loved the cape and that clearly is not a part of the the functional tennis playing part of the kit but that was nice the rest of it like it was okay it did feel a little bit like raggish i'm not one to really want to to opine on kits especially with respect to women Mm. partly because i'm one of those gays who don't have like the fashion eye Mm -hmm. for women like i'm not gonna be here trying to be your good judy and tell you how to wear your clothes and what pump goes with what and blah 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 that's not my bag and i find it a little bit crass and demeaning the way a lot of gays do it specifically for tennis players (laughs) Just going to leave it at that. What I will say is some of the the responses that I see consistently to Serena's outfits is what is she wearing? Not because it looks terrible, but it doesn't suit her body. Mm. And that her body looks big and fat and out of shape and blah, 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 blah. And that shit's just totally out of line. That I will will sit here and say, y'all need to pull your socks up. And so many times you see that coming from women, it's like woman on woman crime, mm. which blows my mind. I'll leave it at that. Well, so we'll stay out of that. Keep it on the playground. Obviously, there's more to talk about Serena with respect to the press conference <laughs> debacle that happened afterward. We'll get to that later on in the show. As far as other carnage on the woman's draw, a lot of it had to do with withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Petrik Vidova had some pain in her left hand or left arm withdrew after the draw had already been made opened up a spot for a lucky loser in that section Uh, but she was you know one of the most informed players coming into this tournament and throughout the year the finalist in australia wozniacki has had a very rough go of it recently a losing streak of four and dropped her first round against kuder matova after winning the first set in a bagel yeah. It's a bizarre scoreline losing 6 love 3636. Three, six. Her record on the year is now 9 and 8 and we could be seeing although it's totally different medical situations but she could be in the midst of what Venus went through post 2011 where she had a couple of years in the wilderness trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to deal with her her new s- situation. Right. Really. Possibly. As to how long Caroline is willing to stick around through this, that's something that is yet to be determined. But for now, it's it's unfortunate for her, and uh, we wish her well. Kiki Burton's had terrible luck, terrible, the first week. Got a nasty stomach virus and really just could not compete in the second round against Kuzmova. 
had to retire early in the match, and apparently then waited about a half hour for Federer to be done with his press conference while she was terribly ill, which is just crazy. Is one of those things about tennis that's like illogical and just let her go home. But she waited around and did her press conference like a champ. Venus Williams lost 3-6-3-6 to Elena Svitolina. Not a surprising loss. An expected loss, I would say. I, I know a lot of folks were saying, you know, well, you know, this is a type of a match that Venus could be up for and could, could do the business, but it didn't happen. There were some positives, I would still say. For the better part of the last year, we've seen Venus show up with... Uh, a much depleted first serve, mm-hmm. serving routinely anywhere from 70 to 90 miles an hour on the first serve. But she was cranking it a lot more in this match. And she was less strapped than she has been in previous matches. So hopefully, if I'm to take any positive from this, it's it's auguring well for the grass, where if she's able to bring a better serve, first serve, at the very least more power to her service game, that could help her. But from all reports... You watched the match I was not able to. Her ground game was still a mess. <laughs> yes, the serve speed was one of the very few highlights, unfortunately, for Venus. On to the men. We spent a lot of time on the women's side. As far as the big three, they are making it through the first week as expected. Very cleanly, aside from Rafa losing a set to David Goffin, Goffin was playing remarkably well. In so, that third set. Yes, in the third set. <laughs> in the third set. <laughs> Because it did not look good in the first two sets. So all in all, a pretty undramatic first three or four matches for the big three. That said, if you had to put money on which of the top, which of the big three would be the one to lose a set in the first week, it would not have been Rafa. No. And today, actually, uh, Roger and Rafa came through the round of 16 with identical score lines. What was it? 6-2, 6-3, And uh, Yeah. Something like that. Rafa played Landero in the third round. And bless his heart, he did his utmost. He did his best. When he thought that he had nothing more to give, he hit harder. He (laughs) tried harder. And still, Rafa had all the answers for him. Which encapsulated, for me, the trouble with playing Rafa and Clay if you're not one of the really top guys on Clay. Because they're just no, there's nowhere to hide, right? And over best of five sets, your weaknesses, even if you don't display any on that day, the 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 least of your game will be exposed. And you can probably bet that you are the less fit player out there, mm-hmm. regardless of who you are. As far as top players who are playing way too many sets, Dominic Team is losing sets to people he shouldn't. But he is coming through regardless. No, no five set matches. It's not shocking. It's not. It's not potentially deleterious to his prospects. Put it this way. No, it's still no. three four set matches. And he's in excellent shape. Yes. Losing a set to Tommy Paul on clay shouldn't happen. Tommy yeah. Paul was playing out of his mind. Okay. I'm telling I'm you, saying. like at at one point, in that well, I think it was a third set tiebreak. At the back end of that third set, it looked tricky. For Dominic team, I believe it was down four love in that third set tiebreak, and uh, Dominic, to his credit, turned it around. Bublik was giving him fits with these underhand serves. Uh, Bublik kind of throws everything he has at you, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Dominic team, for all <laughs> for all the press that he's gotten in the last twenty four hours, 
off the tennis court, one of the things that he did say in press that was helpful was debunking this idea that the underhand serve is somehow, that it's somehow a stain on tennis, that it's uh, mischievous. You know, like he Mm -hmm. said, listen, I'm back there in Timbuktu. Like I expected it. (laughs) Like I was ready for it. It Mm -hmm. made sense. And so let's, let's please get to this point in tennis now moving forward that the underhand serve use it if you want to be prepared to lose points if you do Mm -hmm. like everybody should be prepared if you use it regularly yes right it's not a long-term tactic it's a low percentage play i know you want to talk about alexander zverev here as far as playing needless five set matches (laughs) but let's be fair to him he was not expected to necessarily go deep in this tournament because of his piss poor form Mm. he did win the week before and he's still in week two. So there's that. Yes. Do let's, we... let's celebrate that, as <laughs> Oprah says. He did get into a long tussle with John Millman, who I don't think was previously known for his, his exceptional play on the surface. But who doesn't love John Millman, really? Again, pretty much the only Australian guy who will champion the Aussie woman. <laughs> so he's always up yes. there in my book. But Zverev... He is playing a bit too passively, too far behind the baseline. And someone remarked on Twitter that his net game has improved quite a bit. But unfortunately, his baseline game isn't as lethal as it was. So, you know, if he finds that equilibrium, like, he's still here. The one thing I will say about Zverev, this whole business of the Yorkshire accent with the Yorkshire reporter, his name is Jonathan Pinfield. We got that for the first time last year, and Sasha was apparently smitten with his accent. And bewildered by it. It became like this running joke. It gave like a, a lighter side to, to, to Zverev that we don't always see. If you are to believe that narrative. If you're me, I, f- I find interaction kind of dickish, frankly. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to... I'm not going to be disingenuous about the way I feel about that. <laughs> mm. Like, the... Uh, you know, it's this weird thing that happens with all these young, white, male tennis players where the slightest little thing that they do is taken to mean that they're the cutest, funniest, just most eligible would-be bachelors that you could possibly have. And I don't buy it. I find it... ah, It's very strange. It's like this supposed rakish charm that's centuries old and it's appealing to some people but to others it feels aggressive and cocky and dickish it feels condescending to me that's how i read it. well that's what it is but be careful because now now you got a lot of fans saying well if zverev had done this he would be hung out to dry and crucified like where did this come from where did this narrative come from had done what anything literally anything that other people get a pass for to be clear, it is bizarre. whatever Zverev has coming his way is of his own doing. I, and I'm just saying. I said what I said. <laughs> like the way that Zverev talks about his supposed best friend, Marcelo Mello, basically calling him a loser who doesn't have a woman because he's kind of a loser. That could not be me. Like that could not be my friend. Stefanos Tsitsipas is no longer in the tournament. He played the longest match of his life. Today against Stan Wawrinka, it was only the second time he'd played five sets in a Grand Slam match. 
and he had his chances. Was up two sets to one against Stan, and uh, came that match came to a tragic end for him. It was a remarkable match. It was the match of the tournament so far. Some people are calling it the match of the year, and I'm I'm not going to fight with that. I'm not going to quibble with that at all. To see Stan, like the sound coming off his racket, like it used to, I think it's been a it's been a long road, especially at his age. But he's coming into the stand that we knew in 2015 and 2016. Maybe not at that level, but the the defense from this 34 year old guy was pretty stunning today. He's 34 years old now. Yeah, we saw what happened to David Ferrer when he turned 34. It went all downhill essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the the decline can be so rapid once you're that age in tennis. You never mm-hmm. know. And so he's, he's climbing back up the Grand Slam hill here, two days ago beating a resurgent Grigor Dimitrov in three tie-break sets. Which was a, a very close match. Well played. Dimitrov, I think, should be very encouraged by that with that result even though it was straight sets it just sucked that he had to play somebody like stan in the third round and for him right but you make your own bed right yeah that's your ranking he had already gone through chillich a top 10 player that's your ranking now they're (laughs) on both tours we think more so on the women's tour but on both tours there's nowhere to hide no no not at all but back to the stan sitsipas match I know that we may have been a little critical of Stefanos lately, <laughs> but tennis, as, as a listener pointed out right. to us, tennis-wise, the dude is is the truth. Uh, there's no getting around that. Like, so you've come around to this a little bit because I've been trying to tell you this. Yeah, uh, it's he doesn't play my my favorite style of tennis, but he is seriously talented, and the mental game is there. What I would like him to get rid of is those little mental mind games and those little ticks that I find unsportsmanlike. But for him to be... Specifically? Specifically. Now, this has started happening over and over in every match. Changeover is over. Opponent is at the line ready to serve. And Stefano's got to run back and change his racket. If it happened once or twice, okay, whatever. Maybe you forgot. This is clearly a tactic now. It's it's very cheap. It's very it's just so amateurish. You you've got to stop it. For a while, it was like, well, you're young, you're caught up in your own game, doing this. It's it's conceivable that you could forget. Right, but now it happens in every match. The umpire has to step in, and from what I understand, the umpire might be handcuffed because this is a different rule. This is like equipment versus time violation. But at some point, this is unsportsmanlike. So I don't like that. But in general, Tsitsipas is a pleasure to watch. He's coming to net constantly. He's diving, which I am a little bit worried about because I don't want him to become Boris Becker when he retires and barely be able to walk. I want him to preserve his body. That's just like my, uh, I guess, paternal instinct. (laughs) Do you have one? (laughs) (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Oh, so I see see how it is with these these cute little white boys. Excuse this me? this mothering and fathering business mm-hmm. <laughs> that we rail against. That's essentially rail, rail against that we rail against. This is and and get us riled up. Okay, I conflated two mm. things there. Uh, that's kind of what this is to an extent. That's ridiculous. I'm just saying diving is 
flashy and fun to watch, but like you do need to take care of your body for your career and what comes after. Mm-hmm. Just saying. As for the match point. The match, oh my god. Stan hits an around-the-post backhand. Slice. That hits the line. And it's pretty clear that it hits the line. But if you're Stephanos, I would probably argue it too. If it's that close and it's match point and you've been so competitive up to that point, I would I would fight that a little bit. But mm. hmm. this is this I was so happy I was able to see this point. I was at work uh-huh. and I was able to stick my head through a little cubbyhole to watch this match point. And I was like probably cursing uncontrollably when I watched it. <laughs> like fuck <laughs> So the backhand slice goes past Tsitsipas, who is like almost at net, right? Mm-hmm. So in theory, he has the best viewpoint of where this ball lands. And then he goes to the mark and circles it with his racket and starts prancing off to the back of the court. Stan, if you look at his reaction, he thinks he's won the match. Mm-hmm. He thinks it's in. Well, he knows. Well, tempered by Tsitsipas's reaction, right? So the chair empire jet jets out of his chair and goes and looks at it. And it wasn't even like, oh, well, damn, let me go to this side. Let me walk around to this side. Let me, oh, and then, uh, uh. no, immediately he was like, palm to the ground. <laughs> That's good. Match is over. And Tsitsipas did not argue. No, no. Because if the empire like hems and haws too much, then you have an argument on your hands. Then you have like, well, he's not sure. So what is what is the truth, right? There's uncertainty brought into the mix. So the umpire was very good in looking at the line. Basically, there was no mark because it was on the line. And it's done. Match is over. And uh, everybody moved on. Okay. That's a very charitable read of that situation. I think I'm saying the, f- the umpire did a good job in yes. dispelling any sort of uncertainty. Yeah, but if we're... There are a lot of folks who are really pissed about Stefanos's reaction in that situation. But on any other surface, you would immediately challenge. It doesn't matter who you are. That person would probably challenge, unless you're Venus Williams, who never challenges. Yeah, but then you go and circle the the mark with your racket and then immediately pretend as if it's out, like way out. That type of reaction is like, dude, the ball's like five feet wide. Like, I'm moving on. That's what that reaction is. Mm. And if that is your reaction, then you believe the ball is out. So when the umpire then on match point says, uh, without taking any time to really look it over is like uh, actually was in you say something if you're that certain about it this is the the longest match you've ever played like the stakes are very high i just found it curious that he had nothing to say afterwards i think you're reading too much into it and you're implying something that's very ugly no i'm i'm you're not finished that he i'm was not cheating. finished no i think the 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 tendency is to jump to that conclusion that there's something nefarious with stefanos what I think is actually at play here is there's a difference between what your mind thinks in those high-pressure situations and what your emotions tell you. So I think mm. that Stefanos knew the ball was good. But we know like how many times we're, we're not just in sports faced with high-pressure situations and you have no way to tell how you're going to react in that situation. He may have had a terrible reaction and afterward he may have realized it. Which is why he didn't say anything. Mm. That's what I think is oh, more okay. likely at play. I don't think it's necessarily nefarious. I think his instincts in those moments, his default reactions are kind of shit. And like something that he'll be able to work on with more experience. Because if there is some benefit to give him, it's the fact that he is 20 years old. That is, that's a valid 
excuse to give somebody. Oh, I don't think you've ever given a boy child the excuse. No, this of is youth. this is different. This is not like being a dick to people mm. in your personal life and behaving like a fool. This is trying to figure out how to win matches. And this was a brand new situation for him. The gamesmanship with the changing of the racket, absolutely. What's becoming a problem for him is that the cumulative effect of all those things, the the changing of the racket, the getting the coaching from the his coaching. father, his hitting the problem. ball out of the stadium when that should have been a point penalty, not getting the same kind of uh, punitive treatment from the chair that other players do. And then you have this moment at the end of the match. I'm saying I can see how taken together somebody is willing to cast him in a very distinct light that's very negative. I'm saying there's still some, maybe some mitigating factors that you can give Stefano still the benefit of the doubt, but he's at a very precarious point right now. I think I've said this before, but it is absolutely heightened now. It's not something that an Instagram post after the fact can then wash away. Because if this continues to happen, it's going to be a serious problem. And, and for somebody who has years in this game ahead of him at the very top of the game this is something that he needs to nip in the bud and people hopefully he has people in his camp who can steer him in the right direction and i heard somebody well you don't want to be justine no who does right and i heard somebody report about an earlier press conference in the tournament that he said you know sometimes maybe my behavior isn't up to snuff as a top 10 player yet and maybe his success has come too soon we talk about this on the women's tour a lot where players are bringing junior behavior to professional tennis. Mm-hmm. This could be something of that sort. Okay. That, that's all I'm saying. So moving on, Benoit Pair backed up his two clay titles by making the fourth round. He's currently locked in with Kei Nishikori. It was suspended for light. He's two sets to one down. I think Kei Nishikori should be suspended for playing too many sets. Too many unnecessary This was your prediction. Sets. Yes. It happens every slam now. There was a lot of drama with the racket stringing. Earlier in the tournament, the racket stringers lost one of Rafa's rackets, and Carlos Moya was just hanging out in the office until they located it. And in this match, Benoit was saying he sent a racket to be strung, and it's been away for hours, years. How am I supposed to play tennis with this racket? And he holds up a racket with no strings in it. Benoit has a lot going against him, you know, as far as to be where he is, having won eight straight matches on the ATP circuit, Mm -hmm. winning a title and now winning three matches to get to this point. This has literally never happened for him before. Mm -hmm. So, And French French crowds are actually cheering for him Mm -hmm. and not booing him. This is for somebody who is so damn mercurial, a description that's actually apt. Mm-hmm. You know, like it gets bandied about for other players and it's like, well, they're just kind of dicks. Like Benoit is, he's an emotional guy. He, he's a bit of an oddball. You know, like he doesn't need not having his rackets to be one more thing as a disadvantage for him because the, the odds are already stacked mm. against him. Canadian tennis is having a surprisingly not so great tournament. Their Canadian tennis is rising. I think this is a calm before the storm. Bianca Andreescu played. Now it turns out that she has sustained a rotator cuff injury and she most definitely should not have played here. Probably shouldn't have played Miami. Uh, You know, 
shoulder injuries are very scary for tennis players, and for someone so young, I really hope she takes the time necessary to completely heal this, because you don't want to get into surgery territory. Yeah, it was a big mistake on the part of her team to let her play here. With the exception of Felix, I don't think he could make a case for success for any of these Canadian players ahead of this tournament. Mm. I think yeah. Felix is the most accomplished naturally on clay. And so even if they were all healthy, Felix, Bianca, Jeannie, Milos, well, I strike that. Jeannie made a French Open semifinal for whatever that's worth, <laughs> right? Right. But this, of the four slams currently going and the players currently on offer, this would have been the slam for them to have a dip. As it turns out, two of them didn't even get to play. Because Milos had to withdraw. He showed up in Paris and had to withdraw before the tournament. And Felix sustained an injury in the final of the tournament the week before. Mm -hmm. Last week, you championed somebody playing the week before, being Alexander Zverev. And maybe that was a good thing. Back to your natural predisposition. I know. I, you know, I was right all along. It was... <laughs> Is that the takeaway? Yes. I think you can look back at this and hindsight is twenty twenty, but it was a mistake. For Felix's team to have him play that week. It really was. It's not that Felix is top 100. No, he's top 30. Mm -hmm. Felix is a big boy now. Right. Like, he's not desperately clinging to points and money right now. He did That's not need thing. those points last week. He had committed to play the tournament. That's a thing. That is tennis. a thing. That's great. That shows character if you still feel compelled to go. But it turned out really bad for him. And I think he'll learn in the future. As for Bianca, that's just depressing news for her. But yeah. Really. It's as bad a result as could have happened for her. Winning one match over two days and then having to withdraw because... For a, a worse injury than you came in with. Or at least what was told to the injuring something that you thought maybe would have been, would have been healed. Right. Like that. And, and an injury that is so bad for tennis players historically. Shoulders and tennis players, that's not an injury you want to see be a long-term thing. To do a quick go back to the men's section now, like we, we went through like some of the the matchups for the women going forward into week two. And the men's side on the top half, we still have Novak for like all the people who are no longer there. Novak still has his two bugaboos. The two who before the tournament, you're like, well, these are the two toughest outs for him. Dominic Team and Del Pocho, they're still an offer for him going forward. Oh, I thought you were going to say Struff. <laughs> No, Mr. Struff is there mm -hmm. in the fourth round. That's 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 gonna happen, and you should be happy because Fabio Fognini, you you predicted that he was gonna get there. I I, I should be happy. I railed against it a little bit, but he's there, playing so, Zverev in the the round of sixteen. He'll probably beat Zverev tomorrow. Dominic team plays Gaumontfis. I would say Dominic should beware because, as we said, he has been stretched to four sets by people who had no business doing that. And Mofis has been beating people easily yeah, this what tournament. Is, what is going on? Mofis showed up to his first round match and had like an hour and six minutes before Lightfall disappeared. And he, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and he did. Uh, Fonini, let me tell you, there are only five men left who can prevent him from being an ATP top 10 player for the first time in his career. He's now provisionally top 10. For his, the first time? The first time. His oh. career high is number 11. He's now provisionally 10. And only Del Potro, I think ah. Struff, um, Vavrinka, Pear, and somebody else. Hmm. 
is able, based on how deep they go in the tournament, to be able to stop him from being number 10. Hachanov plays Del Potro to complete the top half, and then the bottom half, Vavrinka gets Federer, which traditionally is a stinker, except on clay. Mm-hmm. And then Nadal is still waiting for the winner of Nishikori and Benoit Pair. Again, as I predicted, <laughs> Kei Nishikori has gotten himself in this position where if he does win this match, he will have to have done it over two days to then play Nadal the next day in a best-of-five set match on Philippe Chatrier. Like, that's untenable. The men have the top four seeds on offer for the semifinals. Still, Djokovic, team, Federer, Nadal. We'll see how it plays out. You want to talk about doing better. Yeah, not me doing better, but other people doing better. To be clear, you could always do you better. You know, be best. <laughs> Tennis Channel could do better. We don't have that problem in Canada. We don't have Tennis Channel. We're not allowed to have it. and We're it, not allowed to have it. It seems like we are much the better for it. Uh-huh. Sinclair Broadcasting is had, did not get a visa to visit Canada oh or set up shop here. Thank the Lord. I don't want to brag, but on TSN, our sporting network, they typically have three networks dedicated to tennis during majors, and they're playing different courts, unless Milos is playing, and all three channels have the same match going on. But the coverage is is surprisingly good, and I feel bad for my countrymen in the United States because it looks like you all are dealing with a lot of bullshit right now. It's surprisingly good in that you can have a cable subscription not have to pay extra and get multiple matches on your actual TV without having to stream and sit on your sit on your couch and watch it. Mm-hmm. But you can also stream from your cable provider, providing you have one, tons of different courts on TSN website. It's it's really good. Now in the US, Tennis Channel has the rights to almost every French Open match, right? NBC has some of the big ones, especially on, on the weekends. weekends. Yeah. And apparently it has been a struggle. Tennis Mm -hmm. Channel Plus is the pay service that a lot of people that we know have paid to get. It went down earlier in the week for longer than a day. And it's just been full of bugs and problems. But not only that, for a lot of folks, you have to pay extra to get Tennis Channel regular to begin with. It's not on your normal So not only are you paying extra to get Tennis Channel, you then have to pay $100 a year to get Tennis Channel Plus. And you have Ted Robinson hawking it at every turn yes. on the actual fair, tennis channel broadcast. I'm sure it is a requirement of his job. Yes. It's part of the script. But, but at the point at which the product is not working, you're still advertising it. In one breath, you're saying, we're aware that we're having problems and we're working feverishly to fix it. But if and when we ever do, give us $100 and you can watch these matches that you possibly could get to see. Mm. It's like it could be taught in schools as to how poor this went for Tennis Channel this week. Yes, but it is indicative of how the tennis powers have been treating its fans over the past few years. It's become more and more difficult to access tennis. People had problems with WTA TV streaming service. Tennis TV didn't have WTA matches. I mean, it's been like a whole saga over probably the past five years that with the advent of streaming and the decline of cable, tennis is is more difficult to access when it should be proliferating because you can find almost anything, anywhere. One of the big downsides of this week 
this first week of the French Open <sighs> was the mad, wild, seemingly out of nowhere beefs that happened on tennis Twitter. Who has time for all this? To even keep track of who's mad at whom? It's last night I tweeted, wow, tennis Twitter burnt itself to the ground today. Good night. <laughs> and, and maybe that's a good thing. Like, keep in mind that we have already lived through the 2018 US Open. We lived through that, and yet this feels worse. No. Somehow. No, 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 no. My take is that... It feels more deranged. I me. have lived through that, and I'm not doing it again. I'm quite simply, not doing it again. I'm not engaging anymore. What we're talking about, of course, is the Serena-Dominic team press room drama that's one of the things one of the things one of the things <laughs> that's the most recent one we have members of rena's army uh tagging alexis ohanian blaming him for serena's career uh i i mean talking just about absolute mess talking it's... about sorry to be crude here but if it weren't for his sperm we would have 24 like that shit right like is who is we wild. who is we here wild did you help serena win any of those majors she won the majors she decided to have a beautiful child with this man who she seems to have a loving relationship with it even if it wasn't it's none of our business that stuff is so beyond the pale it is horrifying it's crazy to me the things that people feel okay with saying (laughs) on twitter like you're really gonna use your name your own name and put that stuff out there? Well, in a sense, credit to those people because we know there are other people who hide behind well, aliases yes. and pictures of players and, and say even worse. Mm-hmm. So, But to me, like this is the, the danger of fandom because fandom is a fetish, right? It takes a, a living thing and objectifies that person. So it, it can suck all the humanity out of a real person and they become a totem. They become an object that you can imbue all your hopes and dreams into. So that person's health and well-being and happiness matters less to you because they are they're a symbol. right? They're not a living, breathing human being with flaws and, and pain and weaknesses. At and this... of course, not all fans are like this, but this is what fandoms can do. But at the same time, you want them to step and fetch it and smile and enjoy the tennis that they're performing for you. Oh, are you, is that a, a hit at a me? A slight dig at you. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I do try to keep in mind that person's humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's actually why I say that for Serena. Because as someone who has been important to me, I, I do want her to be happy. Not because it'll make me happy. You know, I I don't know. Maybe that's how, maybe you don't believe it, but mm. I, I do. At a very base level, what has become crystal clear is that fandom and being a fan is an entirely irrational experience and proposition. <laughs> right. Like at best, it's irrational. And at worst, it can become what we've seen over the past mm. weekend. It can become damaging and dangerous, right? What specifically do you want to talk about here? Well, uh, we have to talk about this this press conference thing. Yes. And the reason we know about it is because Ben Rothenberg, I think, was the first to break this semi-non-story. That Serena 
supposedly demanded to go into press immediately, and what resulted was that Dominic Team was shuffled out of his press conference in the middle of it and moved to a different room. It was also a victory for feminism. Well, here's the thing. So Ben inserted that line that in somewhat of a victory for feminism, mm-hmm. it, which was, to me, like, came off as kind of a joke, a failed joke. It didn't work. But that's that's the framing of the story that we got. The very first, I actually sat there and I, I read it like five, I was at work that day. So I, <laughs> I got off work and I spent, no joke, just 30 minutes sitting in my car reading Twitter trying to catch up on what the hell had happened. <laughs> right. And I that particular tweet, when I was brought to it, I read it like four or five times. And my initial reaction was, is this a commentary on the many ways in which the WTA is disadvantaged with respect to and by the ATP and men in tennis? Right. The ways in which that they're subjugated and made to be less than. <laughs> that Serena being able to kick Dominic team out of... A press room was a victory for the WTA and feminism. That's where my which, mind immediately went, which clearly I was wrong. Well, well, that's the thing. Like, it was a poorly timed joke. I, I still assume that it was a joke. But for the many people on tennis Twitter who have vested interests in one side or the other, they took that conceit and ran with it. So you have like thousands of replies that said, oh my God, that's not feminism. And then you have other replies saying... Wow, Dominic should be privileged to be ushered out by Queen Serena. And then it's just like, first of all, what really happened? And this has nothing to do with feminism, obviously. And it's sad that we have to discuss it in those terms. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, though, the, the tweet, however you imagine it, it's designed to create chaos. Of course. And that's exactly what it did. And that's why we're talking about it. This this actually a lot of this stuff happens behind the scenes and never sees the light of day. And so now we're faced with the fact that the actual facts of what happened are very sparse. They've been things have been reported. Multiple different multiple conflicting things have been reported. And it's becoming clear that a lot of those things are false. And so we are not even going to commit to tape what happened because a we weren't there no b we've gotten reports from people who were there that were that are contradictory so egregiously wrong well well no but we don't know what's right what actually happened Mm -hmm. we've heard from people who were there and witnessed it who have different retellings of these same events Mm -hmm. because keep in mind you're there we don't know where there actually is are you sitting directly in front of Dominic team? Are you waiting for the next press conference Are to start? Are you standing next to Serena listening to the conversation? Where uh, is the actual desk that Serena Williams actually blew up and demanded <laughs> that this happened? Like, where is the actual spacing of this theatrical moment? Hmm. Like, where were you in that time? Right. So what we, what we know is, I think the, these are things that we can say that we... We know we think to be true. true. We think to be true. <laughs> we can't say we know are true. We know that Serena wanted to go into press quickly. I think we can say that that was true. We know that Dominic Team was in a press conference, and we know that as a result of whatever happened outside of the room, Dominic's press conference was 
ended in the main room and moved to a different room. Mm-hmm. That's what we know. <laughs> and so what's remarkable... That could still be proven untrue <laughs> tomorrow. True. I know. What's remarkable is that so many people who weren't there, who weren't even on the same continent, are very, very confident they know what happened. And the obviously, the opinion that riles me the most is that well, this confirms everything we thought about Serena, this big, black, scary woman picking on this young, innocent, cute, sexy Dominic team who's never heard a fly and is very sweet. And look, even when he's mad, he's so adorable. And he... And also, like, <laughs> he's never been one to speak up before. So the fact that he's speaking up about this shows you just how hard done he was. Yeah. And listen, that this, is some shoddy this logic is... right there one of the most perfect examples of the power of video. Because if this were an anecdotal retelling of Dominic Team being kicked out of a press room, it would have had far less of a social media impact than having actually seen the video of Dominic Team realizing he has to leave this room and then deciding, well, hell, if she can do that, I can do that too. I'm not going to stand for this. Like that made this issue... So many things made this issue so much bigger than it needed to be, in my opinion. Mm. And that was one of them. Because we're being presented this video with what we think is black and white hard truths about what happened. When in fact, I can tell you from being in a press conference before, and this is where the real dereliction of duty comes in from those who are on the ground. You're actually there. like You know that there's so much more at play here. Like, I can understand from the folks who have never been in a press room. We think of, we. I hear folks saying, well, defending Serena. I mean, obviously it was the French Federation's fault. Like, is it the French Federation's fault or is it the ITF? Who is at that mm-hmm. desk? Is it WTA? It's not, no it's not Giudicelli. Like, you <laughs> think of the French Federation as Giudicelli and it's right. like this abstract organization that it's this big evil figure that... Any bad decision that happens at the French Open, you can blame the French Federation. But in fact, there are a lot of people who are working on the ground for these people who make probably shit money, who are spending weeks upon weeks on the road away from their families and loved ones, who are having to deal with the brunt of this. Mm-hmm. And, and Bernard Giudicelli is just sitting <laughs> in his box, sipping some mimosas. Right. And whatever happened probably happened very quickly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know within a matter of minutes or less than a minute and the idea that i mean the idea that serena like snatched the mic out of dominic's hands and like get the fuck out dominic i'm here like that's what some people want to believe right they want to believe that this is who she is and we just need to open our eyes and see it this is the quest Mm -hmm. this is the quest in serena's ledger career there's this dichotomy between what she presents herself as as an icon and how she partakes in that and her greatness on court and this quest to undercut it. Right. There because are people who have an interest in in taking that down. Saying, and it's the thing is though, it's not it's not enough to present this as a multifaceted issue. This quest has no room for a nuance. It doesn't have room for accepting that maybe if Serena did demand to be impressed right away, 
that maybe she was out of line in the way she spoke to the person on the ground. Mm-hmm. Could be. Like you could say, mm-hmm. well, you know what, you know, Serena, you were totally wrong. We've also had folks reach out to us via email or whatever and, and give us anecdotal stories about really bad interactions with Serena on a personal level over the years. People are not perfect. And so this idea that Serena could be this icon, this person who's trying her best to champion feminism and better rights for working mothers, but also can be flawed and kind of shitty in some one-on-one situations. Right, like, can't we all? Yeah, but you that... Know, there's no room for that. It's no, either Serena quest, is a goddess or she is evil, right? There it's is, not that she is somebody like all of us mm-hmm. who sometimes has a bad temper and can treat people poorly. There's no room, as I said, for nuance in the quest. Mm, the quest. It's become... It's a thing, though. I've just uh-huh. I've just coined it. It's the quest. The quest. I think that was already coined. <laughs> uh... Also, say you want to concede that Serena was behaving badly in that situation. Okay, who is in charge here? Is Serena in charge? Does she have the absolute power? Are we then going to turn a blind eye to the many ways in which men have behaved in similar ways and it doesn't become an issue? Because one of the things I took serious issue with, Dominic Team is absolutely within his rights to feel hard done by this and feel like this was really shitty. But to then go in an interview and say that I can 100% guarantee you that Federer or Nadal would never have done this. Mm-hmm. Like, dude, that is the epitome of privilege. It is also hilarious. Because you may think that because the powers in tennis would never even dream of putting them in a position to wait. For one. Oh my like, God. If you've been around press conferences, you... You see the efficiency and the full working wheel to get Federer in and out of press. And how much of a well-oiled machine that is. Like, he starts at one point, and he's going, and there's no waiting in between. And so, for you to say that is wild to me. And also, I guarantee you, there's more that's going to be coming out about this that we don't know about now. That's not publicly known, because everything that we've heard and seen has been contradictory to this Mm -hmm. point. I'm just going to say that a lot of joint tournaments have top women's players doing interviews in glorified janitor's closets while men are in the main interview room. Like, the inequality is real, and I don't care if you you don't want to believe it or whatever, but it is. And so male players benefit from that, whether they support it or not. I will say that no one in the big four would ever be, ever be caught out saying something stupid like that, like what Dominic said today. He, it may have been a matter of bad translation or anger or whatever, saying that what happened was indicative of a bad personality. And I assumed that to mean more of like bad character in reference to Serena, but like Rafa or Roger or Djokovic would never be silly enough to get that kind of thing on tape. Roger said that, you know, he assumed that a lot of miscommunication had happened and that stuff that we don't know what happened and that he thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> Which I couldn't right. help but I couldn't help but laugh. <laughs> anyway, this whole thing is not like we've spent a lot of time on it, but it's not really a story. It's not that interesting. And what is what I do have to say before we move on is I don't like to call out reporters 
because I think for the most part, they're doing a difficult job and they're working hard and spending long hours. But I will say that one or two rushed to publish the story very quickly. And then his or her colleagues debunked the published story in the replies, asked follow-up questions, provided more context, people who were actually there and witnessed it, and basically said, the story you just wrote, with all due respect, is not true. And the response that we got today was, I, well, I didn't mean this. Meaning, I didn't mean exactly what I just said in my previous tweet. But in addition to that, Mm -hmm. the crux of my story is still true because it hinges on my belief. Interpretation. My interpretation and belief of what Serena's intentions were. Yes. I mean... So the... This is wild. This is wild. So regardless of where where you are coming from, how you want to read this story, who your allegiances align with, this is bad journalism. And I just, I have to say it because this is a total collapse of editorial principles. And a lot of sports reporting gets, I think, forgotten because it's not hard news. Sometimes papers don't see it as that consequential, right? But like... This is Reporting 101, and that was embarrassing to me, and I just have to put that out there. I'm not going to name anyone, but I think you'll figure it out. Well, we'll see how all this holds up in a week or two. And hopefully it disappears. Yeah. A couple of odds and ends to end the show. Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez have announced their split. After, what, three and a half years together, they'll no longer be a doubles tandem. Suarez will team up with Mate Pavic, while Murray will be playing with Neil Skupski. And in their last tournament together at this French Open, Murray and Suarez lost in the first round to Berrettini and Sonego. Not the best parting gift to each other. There was a lot of chatter today about the fines going out to Anna Tadishvili, who was fined her entire first round prize money purse of $51,250, or euro, I don't know, a lot of money, which falls into this first round performance rule. So it's a little different than lack of best effort because it's part of this rule change about injured players being allowed to withdraw before the tournament starts and receiving half of their first round prize money, like we saw Katie Bolter do last week. She had to get to Paris and collect her check for not playing. Anna Tatishvili, who is a U.S. player, decided to play against Maria Sakari, and the tournament decided that she was not fit to play and find her her entire purse of losing in the first round. It's, uh, I mean, this is what the rule was invented to combat, but obviously people are going to talk about it. There is an appeal process, if you're curious, because I was. The player can appeal to the director of the Grand Slam board with their version of events in a written statement within 10 days, but they do have to pay the fine first. A bit of bittersweet news to end the episode. Lucy Shavasheva has played her final WTA match, losing in doubles. And this is uh, one of those times where somebody retires and you really have nobody saying anything bad about the person. Lucy was universally beloved on the WTA tour. And you may think of her as solely a double specialist, but not too long ago, just four years ago, she was a Roland Garros finalist Mm -hmm. and not a pushover against Serena Williams in that final. (laughs) No. 
But we have we've encountered Lucy a few times in Toronto, and one that sticks out that I think we've told on the show before is that after one of her matches, she came up to this group of people, and they were talking as if they knew each other, and she picked up one of the person's babies and was hanging out with the little baby and it was all very felt like family and then it turned out no she didn't know those people like they had literally never met and they, they were... were hanging out and kicking for like 10 minutes <laughs> and that just seems like the kind of person she was she was so approachable and just very sweet and obviously it was important to her to retire in a place that was important to her Roland Garros she reached a career high of number five in singles she was the two-time doubles champion at Roland Garros with Bethany Maddox-Sands in both 2015 and 2017. According to WTATennis.com, she, uh, when asked about what her legacy is going to be after she finishes playing, she says, I just wish they would remember me as a nice, fun player who they like to watch and great results behind me. It reminds me of Dorian Corey on Paris is Burning. If you've never seen that documentary, I highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. And it is, you know, it's kind of trite when people say, like, what's your favorite quote? But this has always been my go-to quote because I relate to it. She says, I always had hopes of being a big star. But as you get older, you aim a little lower. Everybody wants to make an impression, some mark upon the world. Then you think you've made a mark on the world if you just get through it and a few people remember your name. Then you've left a mark. You don't have to bend the whole world. I think it's better to just enjoy it. Pay your dues and just enjoy it. If you shoot an arrow and it goes real high, hooray for you. We wish Lucy well. On that note, this is the end of, I don't know, episode 160 something, 160. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. The podcast is at the body serve on Twitter. Similarly on Instagram, uh, we'll be back in about a week to recap mm-hmm. the last week and the championship weekend of French Open 2019. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.